the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 103. Our guest is the incredible Allison Russell. Allison is a singer and songwriter from one of my favorite cities in the world, Montreal. Her 2021 record, Outside Child, is nominated for three Grammys, including Roots Performance, Roots Song, and Americana Album of the Year. The recognition has been a long time in the making. Outside Child is Allison's first solo record after decades of making music with Poe Girls, Birds of Chicago, and Our Native Daughters. The result is one of my favorite records in a long time. It was such an honor to sit down with Allison for what was a magical episode. Everyone, my conversation with Allison Russell. things going on we have an old house and we're just having these strange power things going on and it took me a while to make the breaker go back on and then oh no so um, Allison it's all good I you know I'm a teach I'm a teacher and so like I have all the whole week off so 
Oh, I'm was, so glad. I was like, whenever I'm so grateful for your time. Like whatever, whatever we need to do to make this happen, I'm grateful right. that it's happening. Oh man. Well, thank you for your patience and understanding. Oh, totally, uh, totally all good. I I am just like, I'm it's such a thrill to get to meet you and to talk to you. I am such a huge fan. And like this outside child, I, I promise I won't spend the whole time just gushing about how awesome you are, but I, I have to say at the outset, like this record has meant so much to me and it's it, you know it's fascinating to me how your lived experience and what you sing about and what you've written about is so different from anything i've ever been through and yet it connects on such a deep level with me and and, and with so many people so i just want to start by saying thank you for this beautiful piece of work it's incredible thank you so much thank you and thank you for listening you know so deeply and with so much empathy that's not i don't take that for granted at all well, I think, you know, and I, I want to kind of, I want to dive into some of it um, and specifically thinking about place. You just mentioned that you're having power issues and yes. you're, you're now in a very different place of the world than, than where you grew up. I, I've been to Montreal once and um, the city completely captivated me. Like it, it, and it felt like, I mean, there's a pianos on the sidewalks and everyone seems to be making art like, Yes. <laughs> like accidentally. Yes, it you know? it's There's just, just like, art city. There's just art everywhere, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> and it's I, so cute. Yeah, I wonder about that for you for like how much of a role place plays. You know, for me it was that this like I'm on vacation, but for you there's so much trauma that's happening at this at the time that you're there. And um I wonder about the creative process for you and how much of a role place plays in it and how different it place might be for you now where you're living versus say where you grew up i mean montreal is you know i that's part of that record is it's a love song to that city and it's a song of gratitude to that city because i don't think that i would have survived my particular childhood anywhere less art-filled is what mm. i would say mm. because i think for me um and not just for me, I think as humans, I mean, we see this throughout our whole human evolution and history. Art helps us not just kind of declare ourselves and our individuality into the world, but it also helps us remember our history and it helps us process trauma. Mm -hmm. And definitely for me, um, I, you know, I, art was a refuge, music was a refuge books were a refuge, plays were a refuge. I mean, I grew up in a city where there was free repertory theater in the park every year. You know, I, I remember going to see the repertory theater performing um, Shakespeare through the park and you would go, you would walk in Westmount Park and they would tour it to parks all around the city and it was free. And you would go and follow the play through the park. You know, it'd be different scenes in different points of the park. I would go to the mountain and you know, sing and drum in the Tam Tam Jam every Sunday. I would go to the McGill Conservatory and listen to the students play for free. I would go to the Jazz Fest and I got to hear Oscar Peterson play for free when I was a kid, you know. It's like, it, it just can't be overstated how important, how much of a mother Montreal was to me. And wow. a cradle and, and fostered every sort of positive impulse that I had and also kept me safe when I was living unhoused. I think about if I had been in a different city, I really 
I just don't know. I mean, there was, there, first of all, there's the mountain, this huge, gorgeous graveyard. I would sleep in that cemetery in the summertime. And there were 24 hour cafes. So in the winter, I could go into the 24 hour cafes and I would play chess because I was a little nerd, you know, I would just go and like play chess with the old guys and the McGill students cramming for exams and procrastinating with chess games. You know, I mean, it was, I, I really can't overstate how important that city is to me and how much it is in my DNA and, and informed every aspect of who I am. Wow. How about now? How about now um, in terms of creative inspiration, very different place in the world that you're living. So like, are you still able to find those? Because you still need refuges, right? And you still need creative um, spaces. And so how different is it for you now? And are you able to access in the same way? Well, part of why I'm in, why we're here, why my partner JT Nero and I and our daughter Ida and our rescue dog Millie now are here is because this city, I mean, we live in East Nashville. This town is also built on art and songs and dreams. You know, it's called Music City because of the Fisk Jubilee singers having a dream that they could fund their university through making music. And they did, they were the first superstar musical export of America. You know, that's how Music City got her name because of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And that dream has just continued, you know, and it's, and of course it's, it's really expansive there. It's not just music. There's, there's dance, there's visual art, there's authorship, there's, you know, there's literature, there's so many aspects of creativity here that are, I think this is actually a, a, a really, really inspiring cradle of art right now yeah. and and going through i think a kind of a renaissance mm -hmm. in in this time i think we'll have a better sense we're in it so we can't really fully see it but i actually think it's a this city is exploding and diversifying and acknowledging its foundational roots in a new and powerful way that's so interesting you said that because i think so one of the things that i'm curious about both in you growing up and then and then this present moment, maybe I want to really focus on this present moment, like you've been doing this work for a long time. And, yeah. and now you have this, like, you've been well respected, but now you have this record that everyone is just in love with and gushing about and, and you you have this big moment opening uh, for Jason Isbell, and you have this big moment at the Americana Fest. Um, and and like, this this record is being received in such a huge way are you able to kind of zoom out and and see this picture of like wow something special is happening right now not only with you but with with music and people of color in music and queer people in music especially in the americana genre are you able to process that right now and what does that yeah. feel like i mean in a sense yes I, i'm I don't know if I'm fully able to process it as I'm experiencing it, but I'm fully engaged in keeping this momentum happening, not just for me, but for all of us who don't fit the stereotype of what a Nashville songwriter is supposed to look like, right? Mm -hmm. And but that, but that stereotype is a false stereotype, is what we are understanding more and more now. You know, more and more people are understanding that the story has always been bigger. Mm 
And I do think it's a really special moment right now. And it doesn't come without a lot of pain. You know, I think about, cause you're right. I've been, I've been doing this for 22 years mm. professionally. And, um, you know, I, what is happening for outside child is unprecedented in my history as an artist. And frankly, it did not start to happen until after George Floyd. That's the truth. You know, I made that record in 2019. Now in 2019, I was, I was touring with Our Native Daughters. I was touring with Birds of Chicago. We recorded Outside Child in this little four day window, five days, including some overdubs of harmonies uh, at, at, the, at my dear brother and producer, um, Dan Nobler's home studio. We did four days at the Sound Emporium. I, it was right after Americana Fest in 2019. I had just come off the road with Our Native Daughters. I was at Americana Fest with both Our Native Daughters and Birds of Chicago. And then I hit the road with Birds of Chicago a day after we finished recording Outside Child. And the only reason I was able to record Outside Child was because I had been encouraged by my friend, Kaya Cater, who is a beautiful, beautiful writer, banjoist, uh, fellow Grenadian Canadian, uh, Montréalaise. And uh, her mom had encouraged me uh, Tamara Cater had encouraged me to apply for some writing grants through the Canada Council, you know, was was just telling me how much every year just money is left on the table that has been allocated for arts funding in Canada. And she really encouraged me to go after it because I, you know, I had talked to her about wanting to work on this project, but just not having the money or the time. And so she encouraged me to apply for this Canada Council grant, which was ex essentially like an exploratory writing and make a demo grant. And with that writing and make a demo grant, we had enough for four days at the Sound Emporium and we made Outside Child. Wow. You know? And I did not know, I went into that kind of still in denial about that I was even making a solo record and I didn't know what I was gonna do with it. You know, and then we were so busy, we were just basically touring straight through March, 2020. We were on the road. Birds of Chicago was on the road opening for the Wood Brothers. And then the lockdown came, you know, and we, like everybody else, went through various stages of grief and denial and sadness and despair. Um, but after about, you know, four weeks of licking our wounds and thinking, well, maybe we're going to get back to work soon, realizing that wasn't happening, we sat and took stock as everybody did. and. I had this record and I thought, well, I'm going to try and do something with this record and we're going to keep writing because that's what we can control. We can write no matter what else is happening. We can no. always write. And we start, I just started reaching out to people in, in my community and trying to, for the first time in my life, think strategically about how I could create something sustainable, even when all the gigs are gone, mm. you know, for my family, for my child, you know, how was I going to feed my child? And we were incredibly fortunate because of our community of of listeners, of people that care about the music that we make. They helped us get through the pandemic. You know, they helped us by showing up to our live streams and donating money. They helped us by one of our one of our beloved friends sent food every month like this had, had you know, sent us on the ordered food. I mean, it was just incredible the way 
community rallied and we tried to do that too we played benefits we did stuff for music cares we tried to pay forward anything that came our way but it was precarious and it was terrifying and you know jt and i both got really focused on how do we make relationships as writers like we need a publisher we need someone that can get us in the door of writing rooms where we can actually create something sustainable and that's kind of what we were going for but i was also looking for uh, you know, a label partner for Outside Child. And frankly, it was crickets until George Floyd. Can you say more it was, about it that? Was a lot of, it was a lot of, oh, it's a very intense record. And, you know, I just don't know. And of course, it was a time of uncertainty for, for everybody, for everybody in the industry. So I'm, I was, you know, was not, didn't look like a particularly good risk, I don't think. Wow. And okay. then the reckoning, right? Then the kind of, scales falling from people's eyes and suddenly within the industry there was it at least in my lifetime an unprecedented amount of sort of soul searching that i observed going on and people realizing that they had pretty whitewashed rosters wow. you know and that is not the case i will say for my who i ended up with the relationship that i have now with my label with fantasy records and with concord and that whole label group you know, because it's a it's a it's a kind of a, a coalition of labels, really, right? It's Rounder, it's Fantasy, it's Vanguard, it's Stax, it's Loma Vista, it's Easy Eye now uh, has moved over. So I'm I'm in a kind of a label home with some of my beloved sisters like Yola and Amethyst Kia and Margot Price and you know people and and Valerie June and just wow. artists I adore who I consider yeah. you know chosen family as well. But so our label group has been since well before George Floyd trying to represent the full spectrum of artists, mm. you know, and I really, really appreciate that about them. But I had some interesting conversations. I won't, uh, I, there's no need for me to uh, throw shade at anybody, but there were some interesting conversations that I had along the way that made me understand how deep the kind of, um, I, I don't want to say this in a harsh way, but the devaluing of and the tokenizing mm. of black musical expression has become in a lot of particularly in, you know, country and roots branches of of our industry. It's it's been pretty extreme. And and a lot of the time it's people that mean really well and they don't even understand the degree to which they're tokenizing. You know, I mean, and I will give an example, like with Birds of Chicago, this was a few years back. We made a record with our dear brother, Joe Henry. He produced it, a record called Real Midnight, a record I remain very proud of. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a record we couldn't find a label home for. Um, and one of, we got quite far along in conversations with a couple of labels. And one of the things that we were told was on several occasions, oh, well, we already have, you know, a black woman on the roster that is sort of rootsy and plays banjo. So there was only room for one. What the fuck? Right? So that was the prevailing, and that's, 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 that, that, look at the country music industry, yeah. just for women, period. Like, can Casey Musgraves get a song played on the radio? Doesn't matter if she gets album of the year and how brilliant she is and and gorgeous white girl she can't get a song played on the radio you know i mean it's it's like let alone mickey guyton 
you know, who if yeah. they play, if, if mainstream country radio plays her, it's late at night, you know, it's like one in the morning or something. I mean, maybe that's starting to change now because of just the sheer critical mass of, of support for what she's doing. But even what's happening in, for her in her career right now, she was, how long was she signed to her major label? Like 10 years before they put out a full length record for her? you know, before they chose to support her. And that happened because she, after George Floyd, felt compelled to put out Black Like Me. And she put that out herself on her social media hmm. with no label support. And it was a viral groundswell organic reaction that her label then could not ignore, right? right. And I just think about that. I think about if you can't, if so if the country music industry is telling me they can't market and support Mickey Guyton, who is beautiful, an incredible singer, so personable, a Christian, a believer, a, you know, all these things that kind of like, you know, a Texan check the boxes for, for, for mainstream country music, you know, unlike, you know, me, I, I, I could see why I wouldn't be an appealing <laughs> queer black immigrant mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't check the box. Agnostic who wants to sing about her sexual abuse. Fuck no. You know, they don't want me. That's fine. But if they can't, like, if they can't get behind Mickey Guyton for God's yeah, sake, yeah, yeah. It's like, what on earth? You know? How transparent. Not, like how transparent so the bigotry. She was like my Tressie McMillan caught um, who is just such a brilliant writer and thinker and who is working on a piece about actually the Isbel, the, the kind of historic, historic Isbel residency, and specifically about the women that he chose to highlight and center in doing that historic eight night residency. And so she was, you know, interviewing each of us. And uh, she and I were laughing about this. She was like, nobody, none of us have a chance if they can't, if they don't even accept Mickey Guy. Like, the rest of us are completely screwed. <laughs> You know, it's just, she was like, she's like, she was like engineered in a lab to be like <laughs> the perfect. And I mean this in the most loving, sure. I adore Mickey Guyton, adore her, you know, sure. and, but I just, she is, she is blessed with universally acknowledged beauty, a stunning voice and kind of fits into this American roots story that the mainstream country music tells itself. The only thing being that she is black. Yeah. And that was apparently enough for them to reject her for 10 years, you know? There's such a response. They sort of barely tolerate her at the periphery for 10 years. It's madness. It know? is madness. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. But it this is what I mean where now we are in an unprecedented moment, frankly, because just look at Americana alone. The, the emerging artist category, the fact that three Black queer women, a Black man and a white woman, were chosen as emerging artists. That to me was, that was the win right there. Yeah. I had people say, I, you know, people say ridiculous things. This, this music as blood sport thing, which all that that is, is the same old tired, feudal, white supremacist, patriarchal, everything phobic, misogynist playbook of divide and conquer. It's like convince people that there's a scarcity and that they have to, claw each other's eyes out and it's nonsense it's always been nonsense but it's nonsense with a purpose it's nonsense that keeps people in their place so to speak right and i'm not interested in in that i'm not interested i have no uh 
I'm not in competition with any other artist. I am in community with them, right? We lift each other up, we support each other. And everything that's happened for me and for this record since George Floyd was murdered has come through my community of women, mostly in this industry, who are choosing to support and help each other. It has come through my sisters and our native daughters, Rhiannon Giddens, Amethyst Kia, Layla McCalla. It has come through my incredible manager, Carissa Stolting, who I met through my dear friend, Abigail Washburn. It has come through my dear friend and champion, Brandy Carlisle, who literally got on the phone with Margie Chesky, who is the head of Fantasy Records and said, you have to stop and listen to this record. You just had the intuition because she had worked with Margie on Tanya's incredible, beautiful record that she produced, she and Shuda produced. And, you know, she just had this intuition. These people are gonna, these women at Fantasy are gonna hear and understand this in a deeper way. And she was right. And we ended up connecting and, you know, and she will be the first to say, I didn't get you a record deal. You got yourself a record deal. I just made the phone call. But the fact is, she opened the door. Yes, I was ready to step through the door, but she opened that door for me and I'll never forget it. It changed, it lifted us. It lifted my family out of poverty during the pandemic. That's what it did. Oh my you goodness. Know? Everything you just said, Allison, is such an incredible illustration of how important art is and like how the, the whole thing you just said about Mickey is if, if, the, if her, if she gets out there more, and if you get out there more, and if you know this great art that's being made gets out there more, and it doesn't fit that same stereotype, the 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 prevailing attitudes in those industries just have to change, yeah. and it right, and and then that is going to that has such an impact. I I think I gave people too much credit until 2015, 16 for like their, I think I gave people too much credit for their ability to wade through the bullshit. And then I realized I, I had this kind of like stark awakening of like, oh wait, people buy into messages so heavily and they buy into propaganda so heavily. And so if the messages begin to look more representative of who's making the music and who's making great music, it, those prevailing attitudes have to change. Yeah, they change and it changes slow. And you know, the, the, the insidiousness and the kind of pervasive ubiquitousness of white supremacist bias is really tough to battle and get away from. And it's, it's in all of us. Yeah. It's in all of us. We are all inheritors of that white supremacist system we can't you know it doesn't matter what our skin color is i was i was in my case directly raised by white supremacists so i am maybe more aware in the front of my mind of the bias that i'm battling daily than someone who was not but it's in our black communities i was told the first person to tell me it was a shame how dark i was since i had a white mom was a black woman right? That colorism goes deep and the colorism is rooted to white supremacy, right? That's where it, the, the, the fallacy, the indoctrination, the ideology of white supremacy. And it's so many of us, it's not like we're like, we want to believe this. It's just everywhere. You know, it's why a white boy with an, with an AR or whatever gets the benefit of the doubt and the police part like the Red Sea and he gets to walk home. And it's why if he had been a black boy, he'd be dead 
right? There wouldn't have been a trial. It's like, you know, there's, it goes deep. And I just think it's gonna take a lot of really, really, really intentional examination, understanding, talking about it, facing it and actively doing things to shift the balance to level to, to get to get to level, sort of I mean, level the playing field isn't even the terminology I want because that goes back to that weird blood sporty sporty terminology I don't want to that's not what I mean exactly I just mean we have an imbalance and we're trying to find a balance where everybody is safer and healthier and happier and frankly it will enrich the industry endlessly like you don't lose anything by in fact you gain you gain you have everything to gain by opening yourself up to the full spectrum of humanity art artists you know I just I, folks buy records too actually <laughs> folks buy records too actually you know on a, just a base level like, right like if all you care about is commerce you should want more people to feel welcome in your store you know I think that messaging is really important too. that idea of like, because sometimes you're not going to, and this is the the unfortunate reality of it, the tragic reality of it, as someone who also grew up in a white supremacist, um, had a very white supremacist upbringing and, and grew up in a, in a, in a space where as a white guy, as a heterosexual white guy in the South, right? Like I, the, the narrative was pushed to me and I don't just mean by my family. I mean, like every messaging everywhere was like, this is your world. And this is what you, like, you are going to be governor someday or Senator someday. Cause that's what sort of your birthright kind of thing. And it's taken a lot of unpacking to go like, oh, that's really fucked up. And that I bought into it is really painful but i have to work through it and having those these conversations is really important but i think the thing that i've learned coming from that world is that if you are if you can approach these some of these conversations from a commerce standpoint then you can start to get people to think about it a little differently like it's in your financial interest also white folks people that are part of the power structure to open up to a bigger a bigger audience it, it, that's that's where you start to make headway because as soon as you start to have when you try to have those real conversations for with people who are not ready to have those real conversations they shut down. down yeah and they feel the thing is shame is is stunts growth is ultimately how i feel about it i'm very intimately i'm on intimate familiar terms with shame it's my constant companion and i've been learning how to navigate it for a long time and you know it doesn't get less but we can get bigger and taller and stronger around it and do things anyway in spite of it right and i think when people are backed into a corner and they feel shamed then they are going to dig in deeper on you know whatever the kind of false ideology is whatever that because that is less painful than having sort of everything ripped away all at once Mm. and nobody nobody responds well to having fingers pointed at them or to being shamed and blamed right and so i'm not i'm very interested in harm reduction and i'm not interested in much else honestly i have no desire to 
shame and call out or what any of that like it just doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't make me safer it doesn't make my daughter safer it doesn't make future generations safer and so you're exactly right how do we come at the it's sort of like COVID. it's not one thing right mm -hmm. it's it's the vaccines and it's the masks and it's isolating and it's con when needed and contact tracing and you know and educating and it's all of it all at once Right. It's not one thing that's going to stop the pandemic. You know, it's we are going to manage it on lots of fronts until and until we get hopefully to a place where it doesn't kill as many of us, you know, right. and that is it's not one solution and it's not tackling the insidiousness of of white supremacist indoctrination and bigotry in our country is not one solution either. You know, and it's not about blaming any particular person. It's like, what are things that shift that art shifts it people yes. when people connect viscerally through art and music plays, whatever it is, art builds bridges and it, and it builds empathy. And I often think about it like someone who has been as you were told their whole life, you know, you're at the center of the story. Nobody else is as important as you you're the most important one, it impairs empathy development, right? So it's not that you're not a bad person. You're, you didn't get, you didn't choose to be indoctrinated with that ideology. Of course you didn't, you know, you're, you were a child. We were all, none of us chooses, none of us gets to choose the community we're born into and the circumstances we're born into, right? But at a certain point, you became conscious of, oh wait, this is, this doesn't feel right to me actually. And you started making changes, right? And that maybe that came through music. I I really loved T Bone Burnett did this beautiful um, audible called the Confederacy, and I was really touched by it because, you know, he too was brought up in a white supremacist family, Southern family, and it was music. It was it was Ray Charles. It was just the magnificence of black artistry that made that made him understand on a visceral level. Black people can't be inferior. There's no way. Mm -hmm. Listen to this music, you know? And he felt it so deeply because he connected, you know, he's a musician and he connected in that way. And I just thought, isn't that beautiful? Like that was his entry point to anti-bigotry was well, I can't be, these people can't be lesser than because listen to the music, you know? Yeah. And I thought, isn't that gorgeous? And that's what art does. And that's what familiarity between yeah, actually making real, connections between communities. I mean, Elvis, Elvis was someone who connected deeply to the black community in Memphis. And that's why he made the music that he did because it was black music that he was making, you know? And that could that was unacceptable to white supremacists of the day. And so they had to pretend like he'd invented it. You know, he wasn't pretending that, but that's what was put on him. You know, and he would meanwhile, he was an, ind an indigenous American, you know, and that he had to be ashamed of that and not talk about that either because of prejudice and bigotry, you know, and and so then it whitewashes the story. Suddenly Elvis is a white artist. No, he's not, right. you know, no, he isn't. He never was, you know, he was deeply influenced by black artistry and he was indigenous American. That's not that's a deeply American story that is not about centering whiteness it's the opposite you know yeah even though it got appropriated so to speak but you know these stories this is what when we go back and examine the record 
And we learn so much more about the archivist often than we do about the people they were trying to archive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why, and, and again, history is like that. They try and have more than a single source. They try and find all the various first person accounts to, to get a better sense of the real story, you know? It's like a Kirkwood starts like Rashomon. There's these three totally different perspectives of what happens in the woods that day, you know, and yeah. how do we piece together the truth where it's somewhere in the spaces between and in the overlap, you know? And we are constantly doing that. And we're constantly able, I think, to unlearn and relearn, but that only happens when we feel a certain level of safety and connection and emotional connection like I think about that so often, the the prevalence of violence in our schools now and how that has risen as art was taken out of the schools. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's coincidental. I think when children don't have an outlet for all of the, I mean, I mean the hormonal upheaval, life upheaval, the, the, the world around us, everything that goes on, if we don't have an outlet, it gets very destructive very fast. And sometimes we turn that destruction inwards and sometimes it's turned outwards as you know we've seen in the over and over again with these school shootings you know where someone a child turns the violence outward right and turns the confusion outward and hurts others but that's a child we failed right, right. that's a child we failed our we we, we didn't give them the connect, enough connection or outlets or a feeling of community and being loved and being seen and being supported within community that they do that instead you know we have like, such maybe a, they could have just had a punk band and yelled and screamed and moshed right instead you know <laughs> like that right. would have been better you know that would have been much better you could have just but, been skateboarding there was no music program at their school <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was no art program they yeah. just thought they weren't good at anything and there was no outlet for them you know? and, and i'm oversimplifying obviously but i do think art is at the heart of it art is at the heart too. of how we actually start to shift some of the bigotry I think we have such a responsibility to foster that in kids. I think about like in the in those white supremacist structures, there wasn't a and and again, I, I don't want to go too hard on say my parents, for example, because my mother certainly encouraged me to write and that has been an outlet for me. But there's in, in those communities there is, and in those power structures there there is and just look at like the prevalent i mean the the prevalent republican politicians right now none of them are like listening to cool music or music at all <laughs> you know like they're not encouraging they're encouraging impaired. exactly a lot, them, a lot of them are empathy impaired yeah and, and sort of proudly so yeah. But, and I think we have a responsibility as adults in the room to say, like, to encourage kids to make art and to to put yes. it out there and and tell them that, that it's all that all art is powerful and good. And like like my niece is showing a lot of um, interest in, in singing and playing. It just excites me so much, you know, like she's she's wonderful and she's really excited about it. And she's writing these angsty, you know, teenage songs like <laughs> my daughter. <laughs> She was the best. Is she obsessed with Olivia Rodrigo and Billie she is, Eilish? yeah, yeah. So is my yeah. girl. I swear, I'm so grateful to Billie Eilish and and Olivia Rodrigo and Lizzo. Like they are helping our, particularly our young girls, get through the pandemic. Yeah. Because it's they, there's something about there is just a visceral connection that they have, and people can 
throw shade all day long when folks get successful, but there is no doubt to me that someone like Billie Eilish, that was a, an organic, visceral, my daughter doesn't know anything about what her industry connections were or not. She just knows that that music helps her process hard feelings, you know? And she and it and she feels it. And she sings these songs, and she's gone and found Aurora now because Aurora influenced Billy. And she's like going. It's the sweetest thing. She's going down her own little rabbit hole of like writers and and getting influenced by these writers and writing herself. And that is so powerful and beautiful. You know? Yeah. It, yes, absolutely. It, it, you know, you uh, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, but I want to be mindful of your time because we had a, a different time. And do you have a few more minutes or do you need I to can, go? I could probably do a couple more. Let me check. I'm I'm also late for my next one now. Okay. I'm no, but it, but I think that there was I think she was flexible. Okay. I, I should go soon. <laughs> okay. Okay. Look, look, I'll, I'll... I, I am so sorry. I have like oh, messed up the whole day. This I has just... been incredible. I, I'm so grateful. Like I, and then a couple of things came up that I wanted to ask you about. Of course, you know, on, when, when they, when it goes well, I throw out my notes. And so, um, and that's what I've basically done here. Cause you've given me so much, but, um, you as a writer, you write so beautifully and it, in you're working on a book, um, as I understand, and I'm curious about the pro the writing process itself, like for you with words. And I, I mean, specifically, like your understanding of language. Um, what does that that process look like for you? And, and did, when did you know, like, I'm kind of good at this thing? I, you know, it's funny, I know, know that I know that I'm good at this thing. I think that I'm obsessed with this thing. And they're two different things. I don't yeah. think my impulse is I write because I'm great at it. it. That's just not ever been the impulse. I write because I'm obsessed with it and it just makes me feel better and more whole and more sane and less likely to go on a violent rampage, <laughs> so, which I would like to avoid at all costs. I would like to avoid ever succumbing to the desire to go on a violent rampage. So I write instead. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that always, I think words were are really important. I mean, they just are, they're incredibly important and incredibly powerful. And I think I understood that from an early age, probably because of my grandmother, Isabel Roger Robertson, who was um, a brilliant scholar and you know, grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan with no shoes and made her way through her higher education on scholarships and put her husband through school with her teaching and had five babies and still got a PhD and pioneered in kind of um, early childhood education and adult literacy and she was an incredible woman and very, very cerebral and very, very word obsessed. And so we, you know, she was the brightest light of my childhood. I had a really rough go of things with my, um, my mother, my foster family, my adoptive white supremacist pedophile father. Um, you know, those things were rough, but my grandmother, I, we just had the, the, a deep, deep connection. And a lot of it was based on our love of words and stories. And so I was encouraged, you know, I had an adult in my life who had really encouraged my natural sort of nerdy wordy penchant. <laughs> and, and that was one of the joys of my life. And she also introduced me to what I call the hidden canon, which is sort of the great global folkloric body of oral tradition, 
you know, songs, poems, fables, sayings that I have come to understand are the lost women writers' voices. You know, so often that lore is handed down generation, generationally by the women. And I have found so much of value and wisdom, and I've been so influenced by that kind of distilled hidden canon wisdom, you know, and I'm definitely was writing toward that in, you know, on this record on songs like High Brazil and The Hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to tap into that, that kind of distilled women's wisdom, the the kind of underground railroad monuments of words of, we don't know those writers' names, but we've all been influenced by them. And those influences are foundational to informative of every other canon that springs up, including the Western canon that we perceive to be so white and male. But of course, those men were raised by women. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Those men were sung cradle songs and told stories and influenced by the hidden canon. God, I was listening to High Brazil last night for the 500th time and just like it, it, it th- this record keeps giving and giving and th- like for, what, for whatever reason I was ready for that song last night like you know really really ready for it what a beautiful tune that's not oh, a question it's just so a comment <laughs> it's just like, so happy that's a special one for me it's I mean it just I, I I've heard it you know I, I seriously I've been listening to your record like you've seen me post it on social media I've been listening to it um you know, over and over again, it really is probably my most listened to record this year. And I listen to a lot of music, right? I consume a lot of music and yeah. I get sent a lot of records. And I, I think it's um, the one I've listened to the most and the one that has meant the most to me, um, which is hard to say, you know, with with music, because I listen to so much, but I think it is. I think it's the most impactful record for me this year. And for whatever reason, that song, I, which I've loved just last night, it just hit me. We had gone to a, speaking of art, we went to a show. We went to see a uh, um, live theater performance last night. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it was the last five years. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a musical and it, it basically it's these two characters and they sort of tell their story, the story of their relationship from opposite ends of time. So like she starts out at the end of the relationship and he starts out at the beginning oh, and then they, they cross. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. It was, That's a beautiful idea. Right? And, yes. the right? and that, and the writing of that, like the way that that was, I, I couldn't like watching it happen. I was kind of went in basically cold on it. Like I didn't know much about it. And yeah. just I had to write that. I mean, just mind blowing. And they're both artists, you know, she's a, she's a, a, an actor and he's a, he's a novelist and just like the, the, and, and it was perfectly acted and perfectly directed. Oh, it was just incredible. Oh my God. That sounds incredible. But it's so interesting how, like, I saw that and then I came home and listened to your record for the 5 millionth time and like how I was tuned into the record in a different way because I just had that beautiful experience, you know, and high yeah. Brazil just hit me especially hard in that moment. I love that. Well, this is the thing of like art doesn't exist in vacuums. We are all constantly cross pollinating and influencing each other. And that to me is the most beautiful thing about art. It is if we let it be just naturally anti bigotry, constantly transformational, fearlessly, you know, and I think that when we let when we lead with art, we just magic happens and we heal. That's what, and I know that sounds simplistic and idealistic, but I actually, it's not because I'm alive, you know, and I wouldn't be without art. Wow. Oh my God.
Oh, Allison, thank you so much for this. I, I need to let you go because you got stuff to do. And this has been more than I could have hoped. I mean, this has just been incredible. I One of the things that I'm struck by is your presence, like that you are so in this moment right now. And I really appreciate that. Um, we always end on what you're getting down on. So the art that you're fired up about right now, and it could be anything. I am so fired up about so many things. <laughs> I do, it's like, it's endless. But I'm, I will say that I'm really, really, really loving um, both Sunny Wars' new record, Simple Syrup, and Yasmin Williams, her Urban Driftwood record. It's, and I'm usually biased toward more vocally, lyrically driven music, you know, and Yasmin Williams, but Yasmin Williams tells stories with her guitar in this way that just, it's been so restorative for me like what you're talking about the going back to my I've been going back to her record when I just need to like reset and if I'm getting overwhelmed about something and I'm trying to write this book so it's actually been really beautiful to have music that's not um you know vocally uh lyrically driven you know where where the story is unfolding just musically my partner is doing a really crazy dance right next to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry congratulations you have three grammy nominations <laughs> what are you fucking kidding me sorry y'all <laughs> are you kidding me i'm not kidding you're joking. I figured you had some. You're joking. Best performing performance in America I have in the What are they? What are the nominations? Song Roots Performance in Americana album. Yeah. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> happening right now <laughs> this is the wildest oh i'm so glad that this was postponed i'm so glad that you <laughs> that's because it was i was late as usual <laughs> oh are you kidding me you're joking i'm not kidding that would be a really terrible that would be a mean joke that would be, be too mean be he pretty, wouldn't do that he wouldn't do that to you <laughs> he wouldn't do that you have grammy nominations Shit! What is even happening? I don't know. This is amazing. Your face. His face. I mean, I was. What is he doing? I, you know, can't see. I'm in an interview. I think that's more important than this interview. Oh, that's for sure. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Oh okay, my well, goodness. On well, that note, that's a perfect. Perfect. Holy shit. We've never we've we have never ended an episode of the marinade with the guests learning that they were nominated for a Grammy on Mike. So not just one but three, three. What is happening. What is what, what world is this? What alternate universe have I wandered into? Oh my oh goodness. My I tell you what's happening is you made the most incredible record and you're getting you're getting justified respect for it that's what's happening oh i am so happy for you oh my god thank you so much for doing this go celebrate <laughs> i'm gonna go do another interview that i'm late for <laughs> thank you so much oh my god congratulations well deserved you are amazing thank you so i appreciate much. you oh my gosh holy crap all right it was wonderful talking to you i'll never forget this conversation never forget it either oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> All right. Hopefully I'll catch you out on the road someday.
definitely, <laughs> definitely. Where in the world are you actually? Uh, Orlando, Florida. Orlando. Okay. Well, yeah. well, you know, whenever you get down, that's here. where Aoife is my beloved Aoife O'Donovan. So you might, cause I want to come see her husband. Her husband's in this, uh, runs the symphony. There is this. Um, oh, I didn't know that. that. What do you call that? Running a symphony, a conductor. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. I think it's Orlando. I think I'm, it's definitely Florida and I Florida? think it's Orlando. Um, so, oh, and okay. I love Aoife and we've been collaborating. So, yeah, you know, amazing. I might, we might, and we, and we've been wanting to get our daughters together. So who oh knows? Oh my gosh, please, 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 please. Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope you get to play here, but it, it, if you're down here and you got time, I'd love to actually meet you in person and celebrate this properly. Awesome. <laughs> I honestly cannot believe this just happened. <laughs> we'll oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Allison. All right, bye. <laughs> bye. Oh my God. Allison Russell, y'all. The song you're hearing in this episode is High Brazil from her Grammy-nominated record, Outside Child. What a moment. AllisonRussellMusic.com to grab a physical copy of that beautiful record. She also has some very cool shirts over there. Uh, thank you so much, Allison. Thank all of you for listening. This was a magical episode. I, I'm so grateful for everybody who has supported this show and continues to support this show. If you're new, welcome. We have been doing this for several years, and it's all been leading up to moments like this. We've, it's, I'm so lucky. I'm so fortunate to, to have folks who listen and spread the word about the show, marinadepodcast.com, for all things The Marinade, including written pieces, photography, our online store, and more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Tell a friend about the show. These are all free ways to support the marinade. And if you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content like our show Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and provide kind of a window into the process of making the marinade. The last two episodes of Jason's Journey have been extra special. Part two of episode 102 with Van Plating is over there. Van and I talk about the experiences that we had at Americana Fest 2021 in Nashville and keep getting down about creativity and life. We also just released a conversation with Jordan Foley and Thomas Wynn, who are working on Jordan and his band The Wheelhouse's forthcoming record. We recording we recorded that conversation at Tuffy's Music Box in Sanford, Florida, ahead of Jordan's set. Uh, in support of the Colonel. That one's available for free, even if you don't feel like signing up for the Patreon. I also post what I'm getting down on, which is an examination of the art that is inspiring me at the moment over on Patreon. Sometimes we get together for Patreon happy hours, patreon.com slash marinade podcast if you're interested. If you want to support the show financially, but you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, you can Venmo or PayPal us. Maybe you just really like this episode and you want to throw us a couple bucks. It's just at the marinade and the money all goes right back into the show right now that means saving up to cover some festivals uh, this episode has been delayed 
for weeks now because my old MacBook just quit on me. Uh, but I'm happy to report that I'm recording this on a brand new machine made possible by years of support from our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much to our patrons. Come join us if you can, y'all. But uh, above all, thank you for listening and spreading the word about the marinade. All right, y'all, it's time for our review under two, the segment of the show where I review some work of art that has me fired up at the moment and try to make my point in under two minutes. For this episode, I want to spend our time talking about a book that impacted me more than just about anything I have ever read. The 1619 Project, which is the brainchild of Nicole Hannah-Jones. I did not plan to finish the book right before releasing this episode with Allison, but the timing feels oh so appropriate in the wake of our conversation. I hope you enjoy my review under two of the 1619 Project. The forever challenge of writing about race in America is finding a way to take on heavy conversations while also keeping the pages turning as the intellectual wheels are spinning and the emergency break is out of reach. It should not be a difficult ask for folks to buckle down and do the heavy lifting of reading the truth about the painful history of race in America, but here we are. More than just a tough ass, the very suggestion that we call for people to learn facts has become a political wedge familiar to the most terrifying dystopian nightmares. In 2021, 19 states passed laws restricting voting in America. These are rules aimed at disenfranchising black Americans. Florida went so far as to pass a law that makes it a felony to protest in favor of black rights. A law that codifies immunity for atrocities like our nation's dark day in Charlottesville 2017. The act of teaching the 1619 Project is within a hair's breadth of bringing civil liability on the heads of school districts in the Sunshine State. None of these statutes use language so strong as saying black people are not allowed to congregate and petition their government. None of them at this point have been so audacious as to dip into the language that was codified under the slave codes or the black codes, but their intent is the same and it's clear, and that's why the 1619 Project is essential reading. My father used to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The integrity of the electoral count ain't totally broke, but folks across the country want to fix it. To fix the fact that black folks are inspired to vote. To fix the fact that a black man was elected president of the United States, a place where until 1965, black folks did not even have the legally protected right to make such a decision. To quote, fix the idea that a black woman like the 1619 Project's architect Nicole Hannah-Jones could grow up in Iowa, earn degrees from Notre Dame and the University of North Carolina, and go on to put white supremacy in its place by daring to ask each of us that we deal honestly with our history. Our history in a place that spent centuries enslaving human beings, followed by Jim Crow, barely bridged by a handful of years of advances under Reconstruction. You know most of all of this. Some of you know it all too well, having experienced the consequences of our collective past in your own lives and communities. Nothing I've read has expressed those consequences in a way that is digestible by so many, like the 1619 Project. Whether your life's education has included a deep understanding of the history and impact of slavery on this country, or you grew up in a place where things just were the way they were, the 1619 Project offers a clear examination of our history and a call to action. Nothing about that should threaten any of us. If it does, challenge yourself to read the book or read it a second time or a third, however long it takes for the truth to seep in and set us all free. Oh, I think I went over two minutes, but it's important. And I hope you go read the book. 
I want to thank all of you so much for listening. Thank you so much again to Allison and everybody in her orbit. She is clearly surrounding herself with some pretty incredible people. It was a pleasure to deal with um, with her folks, and I'm so grateful for for her time and energy and the music that she has made. Go listen to her record. This was such a magical episode to create, and damn it, I hope she wins those Grammys. She deserves them. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.